Hello, I'm Amber Athey, The Spectator's Washington editor, and I'm here to encourage you to subscribe to The Spectator's American edition. If you visit spectator.us forward slash subscribe, you can get our print and digital edition for just $7.99 a month. This means you get unlimited access to our amazing website and we'll send you a beautiful 80-page monthly magazine. You'll also have access to our mobile app. Subscribe now at spectator.us forward slash subscribe. You won't regret it. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and now the Joe Biden presidency. We will be looking at how a 78-year-old president will change America and we'll be asking if normalcy, which is what he promised to bring, has returned to American politics? The answer, of course, is no. I'm joined today by Patrick Allitt, who is Cahoon Founding Professor of History at Emory University in Georgia. And we're going to be asking, what do Americans really think about the royal family? Now, Patrick, this week there's been the uh, major... Uh, news event, which is the Harry and Meghan interview with Oprah Winfrey, which has been transatlantic news, I think it's fair to say. Uh, And a large part of the media conversation has been about how Americans feel about the monarchy and how they differ in the way they feel about monarchy to Brits. Do you think that Americans are as interested in the monarchy as Brits seem to think they are? Or do we Brits... You, I should say, are a British person, but you've been living in America for a long time. Or do we Brits tend to exaggerate how important the monarchy is uh, in the minds of Americans? There's no exaggeration at all. Americans are completely captivated by every fragment and every scrap of news which comes out about the royal family. I think they feel occasionally conflicted about it. When I, when I challenge them and say, remember that you fought a revolutionary war to get away from the British monarchy, they, they, they laugh and blush and say, oh, well, that was so long ago. Surely that's uh, no longer significant. And they, and they regard it as celebrity gossip, but of an incredibly elevated kind. In other words, I think they do recognize the mystique of the monarchy, even though it, it's got no direct significance for them. And even though the history of the two nations might expect us to think there would be a a sharp animosity towards it, but there's none. And have you picked up any sense of animosity towards the British for not accepting Meghan into into the the, the monarchical bosom? Yes, there is a um, in the in the media discussions and actually in some personal discussions, there is the uh, there's certainly a readiness to believe that the that the monarchy showed uh, a certain amount of racism and a certain amount of resistance to Meghan, and that, and there's certainly a widespread feeling here that she's justified in the remarks she made to Oprah Winfrey. And wh- why do you think, if if Americans do have this fascination in the monarchy, what do you think lies behind it? Is it a sort of longing for a, a class system that they've never had? Is yes, it, it is. In fact, they've got a class system, but they're just embarrassed to talk about it. In other words, everybody in the United States says that they're middle class. If you ask Bill Gates, you know, he'll say, oh, yes, I'm middle class. But if you ask people who we would regard as working class, people who are factory workers, they also say that they're middle class. So some people aspire downwards in their label and others aspire up. 
But at the same time, it's a highly elitist society with enormous disparities of wealth and poverty. But that goes along with a certain shamefacedness about talking about it explicitly. So it's extremely bad form to boast about your wealth. And it would be even worse to boast about your class position and to actually say of yourself that you were part of the upper class. But I do think that historically, Americans have been fascinated by the class distinctions in Europe, which are so much more flagrant and distinct, and sometimes also um, surrounded with titles. So starting in the late 19th century, there was a, a procession of American heiresses whose fathers had made great fortunes in American industry coming to Europe to find titled husbands. A good example is Winston Churchill's parents. His dad, Lord Randolph Churchill, married an American millionaire's daughter, Jenny Jerome. And that's true of a lot of the, uh, the most, the, the, well, the, the richest American families, their daughters married into the British and European aristocracy. And that's one of the things that Henry James talks about in a lot of his fiction and Edith Wharton. Well, it was interesting. I don't know if you watched uh, the interview, but it was interesting that Meghan seemed very cross although she she wouldn't quite admit this but it was clear that she was crossed that her son would not be getting a title and do you think that's because uh she felt she'd made it you know she's she'd got there and was perhaps very angry when she learned that her son would not be uh would not be given the title that she expected of prince i don't know enough about exactly how the the giving of titles works if a sharp distinction was made between her and all other women who'd been in a comparable situation previously, presumably the grievance is justified. You, she might suspect that there was something very pointed about the, de the, the declining of it. But if the situation's more typical, then clearly there's nothing to worry about. I, I, one of the things that's been going on this week is that there's been, I think, a gradual dawning realisation that the way in which Americans talk about race relations is very different from the way in which British people talk about it. Uh, and obviously, each nation has its own way of thinking about things like that. And the Oprah Winfrey interview was conducted entirely in the terms of the American racial discussion, which presumably to some British ears would, would sound a little bit anomalous. Yes, I suppose. I mean, to me, it sounded a lot like they had both Oprah, obviously, has done and it sounded like both Harry and Meghan have very much imbibed not just the way Americans talk about race but the way Americans have started to talk about race in the last two or three or four years talking in critical race theory terms uh, about how representation should work and equity and so on. It seems to me they're very much swallowed that the kind of you know it's often called woke uh, which is a bit of a sort of lazy word now i guess but it's it's it is the sort of the the, the world of the racial social justice is what they've they've imbibed that's right and and obviously there's never going to be a, a solution to a problem like this because it's all based on perceptions so if you feel that you've been slighted or you've been wronged in some way no amount of reassurance is going to cause you to start thinking otherwise in a way, the, the person who comes out of it worse is, is Harry, because he seems to be caught between these conflicting loyalties and conflicting ideas about how to think about it. Yeah. I suppose with, the, with Americans, it's interesting that they are so interested in celebrity and they see monarchy as a sort of special type of celebrity, I think. It's interesting that they think like that, given their, their fierce egalitarian streak. But does it also mean that they can turn on people as quicker in that nobody is better than anyone in America, even if they do worship money and fame? 
That's a very good point. Yes, there used to be a tradition of, of deference and reticence, but that's also completely disappeared. So that anybody uh, who does become famous, and especially if they become a celebrity and cultivate their own celebrity, it, it's playing a very risky game because the, there's the possibility of a sudden fall from grace if you make the wrong, the wrong remark or are found to have done something in the past which is now regarded as disgraceful, you, your fall can be as sudden as your rise. And I suppose also because America is such a big country, different parts of it have very different ways of looking at things like this. I mean, it seemed to me a very Californian piece of moral theatre, the Oprah interview. Uh, I imagine most people in Georgia would, rega- would have regarded it as, as ridiculous, perhaps, as a lot of people in Britain would. I don't think so, actually, Freddie, because California is the centre of the media industry. And so people living all over the country, including here in Georgia, take cues from what's being said in the in the Hollywood film and TV studios. And especially with someone like uh, Oprah, who's become really a, a, a mega superstar. She's, she's probably one of the most influential people in the entire world by now. Yeah, the way in which she sets up the story is going to be determinative for most people. I was interested. I, I watched um, Oprah interviewing Fergie after I saw the Meghan Harry thing for, for an article, not because I'm, I'm so keen on it, as I keep saying on this podcast. But I was very struck at how Oprah's questions were exactly the same. And so for Americans, it's been looking at the monarchy. It hasn't really changed that much. You know, it, it's just a subject of sort of fairy tale like fascination you know they like talking about the palaces and what actually happens in the palace and all this sort of stuff and it's 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 something that's remained quite constant for the last however many years well i think ever since princess diana she was the first of these so-called fairy tale princesses even though obviously she came from the british aristocracy but she was a terrific success in america and she was so much more media friendly and photogenic than Prince Charles, that there was an enormous readiness to take her side on all the important questions in her conflict with Prince Charles. And so I think that then Fergie and now Meghan have t- have, are, are, are placed into the same role because they're the newcomers moving into the royal family. And they're the ones who are in fact finding it a very stressful thing to do. The, the American assumption is that they are the people with whom sympathy should lie. In other words, I think if you scratch the surface a bit, you will find Americans saying the royal family doesn't actually deserve its very unusual status. It's got it, but it probably ought not really to have it. And therefore, it ought to be particularly incumbent on them to treat newcomers right. And did you find it weird when Meghan Markle started comparing herself to the little princess, uh, which is, of course, a Disney, Disney cartoon character? And is this a way in which Americans uh, regard royalty? Is it, it is like it's, it's a Disney thing. Well, President Reagan, President Reagan convinced himself that he'd been at Pearl Harbor, where in fact all he'd done was see some films about it. And he made an address to Congress in which he implied that these movie scenes were part of his personal life. And so perhaps there is a, a, a developing tradition of thinking that, that the movie experience, even explicitly fantasy ones like Walt Disney have got some purchase on reality, which the tedious everyday life that we live can't possibly equal. And that's a very American thing, is it not? Well, there's a lot of talk here always about the the American dream. And obviously it's a phrase which is extremely useful because it's so vague. Nobody quite knows what this dream is. 
but it does imply a willingness to think daring thoughts. And entrepreneurs love this idea that they're, they're setting off in new directions and un uh, uncovering previously unimaginable possibilities, which are lucrative and, and workable. And uh, there's something a bit tedious and, and um, limited about confining yourself to the drab realities of, of ordinary life. Yes. How do you think America's founding fathers would feel about this sort of American, it's not quite worship, is it? But the, what we're talking about, this American habit of indulging in monarchical, monarchical fantasies. I think they'd hate it. Yeah, One yeah. of the things that the founding fathers were strongest about was getting away from the vice and corruption which Europe represented, and most of all, getting away from the social stratification, which to them was a disgrace. One of the first things that George Washington did when he became the first president was to insist that he'd be called Mr. President. Now, there was some discussion, should we call him Your Excellency? And he said, absolutely not because I'm just one more citizen and I'm the citizen who's temporarily got this job, but I'm still, I'm Mr. Washington. And, you know, for the moment I'll be Mr. President, but that's it. And similarly, um, when Benjamin Franklin was the British ambassador to the court of Louis the uh, 16th, he wore simple clothes and refused to enter into the court etiquette. And he sort of embodied the idea of the simple virtuous yeoman farmer Whose, whose very existence was a defiant challenge to the corruptions of Europe. So I think the founding fathers, all of them, would be horrified by this. Uh, Alexander Hamilton might be the only exception. I think he was a little bit more willing to think in terms of hierarchy, but he'd, you know, he'd grown up in one of the English colonies. And uh, do you think that, I mean, I've, I've read a few times in recent years, particularly with people talking about the Trump movement and so on, that America is has a hardening class system in that, that there's always been class in America, but it's becoming more defined. And that uh, the Trump phenomenon, the populist phenomenon, was very much a sort of working class reaction against an elite that also reacted violently against uh, the working class phenomenon. Do you think perhaps this monarchy story ties into it? Uh, America is becoming a much more class-based country. No, I think that the, the, the rhetoric of the Republican Party uses that idea as a convenient stick with which to beat the, the, what it calls the liberal elites. But, but in fact, the class system here, although it's real in the sense that there are the enormous disparities of wealth, remains fluid. There's a lot more motion both up and down than there is in Europe. And... I, I don't think I've ever met anybody here who, who, would have say, who would say that on principle, it's a good idea to have a class system. In other words, I teach at a highly competitive university and the students we admit here are marked out for privilege. There, it's an elitist institution from top to bottom, but you, you'd never get any of them to admit it. They insist that they, there's nothing they believe in more passionately than equality. And then I say to them, so will you be alarmed if you start earning more than the American national average? Because then they give a sheepish grin and say, oh, no, we expect to earn more. But that doesn't mean that that doesn't have class uh, connotations. And it's striking that all the way across the American political system from right to left, this fascination with the British monarchy is, is universal. Everyone, everyone loves to indulge in that. Or, or is it a new kind of classism that isn't about birth or blood or anything like that? It's to do with the opinions that you hold and what you what you say about politics. Well, that, yeah, that's part of it. But it's, it's, it would be very difficult. I can't imagine how you could actually draw a diagram of the class system 
by opinion. Yeah. I, I'm sure there is a sociologist out there somewhere who could do it. Yes. But one of the, you see, one of the characters... Well, maybe if you get into higher education, you know, you know what the words are, right? So maybe it's just higher education is the thing. Is the That's part of it, yes. And obviously Trump did everything he could to make highly educated people look ridiculous. Yeah. That was part of his, uh, his shtick. And he loved the idea that there's a kind of homely, basic wisdom which doesn't need higher education and which somehow ordinary Americans have got and the elites have lost. But that's just, poli- that's just the political exploitation of resentment. I don't think it corresponds to a reality, except insofar as the constant repetition of these things starts to create a kind of vestigial reality. And and Trump himself was a, was a kind of king to his fans, and you know he's the the rich man, the very rich man who's who's benevolent towards the poor. Right. Surely he was much more like an authorita- authoritarian dictator than he was like a king. Yes. Well, I mean, some kings are like authoritarian <laughs> dictators. <laughs> True. But but I I mean I suppose what I'm getting at is that there are dynasties in America. You know, now people look at his children and say, are they going to go into politics? And of course, we had the Clinton dynasty, we've had the Bushes. Kennedy's Americans are dynastic in the way they think about politics, which is a royal hangover, isn't it? It is, with the difference that when it comes to the point, the Kennedys haven't been able to duplicate their original success. Yeah. And it now looks highly improbable that the Bushes will be able to do so. So, yeah, there was a you know, it was the Kennedy period from 1960 to 2000, and the Bush period from the mid-80s to the mid-2000s. But they tend to die out fairly quickly even though obviously being a member of that family gives you an initial edge if you're running for governor or running for Congress, what they can't do is translate it into unquestioned supremacy. Whereas, of course, if you're a a British prince, you inherit whatever your qualities and whatever your life was like. I do think there's a fascination with that. Do you think, let's end it on Harry and Meghan, do you think Americans are going to get bored of them or will it just be an ongoing celebrity interest story for a number of years? It'll be an ongoing story for many years to come. But unless Harry and Meghan actually do something, they're gradually going to fall out of interest. It's hard to believe that they're going to become ordinary suburbanites, obviously. But they're going to have to do something to keep in the spotlight. There was the, I think the nature of being a celebrity is that you're always having to think of new ways to draw attention to yourself. And they're in a highly paradoxical position because on the one hand, they say they don't want to be in that spotlight. And yet once it started to dim, I think they thought we need to get back in the spotlight. And what could be better than an interview with Oprah? So that they appear to have divided minds themselves. They don't really want a a highly private life. I think they'd find it too monotonous. (laughs) Well, Patrick, we'll end it there. But thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. It's a great pleasure. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback positive comments or constructive comments only please to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite (laughs) 